Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Yo. And live via Skype is Brad Avery. Hey. Brad's here. He's going to talk to us about Boston crime films. He's been brushing up on all those. He's been exploring that whole thing. Uh, We like, uh, you know, Eddie Coyle. We love that. But there's a lot we haven't heard of, and he's going to tell us about some. So how did this start out? How did your little trek into uh, Boston crime stuff begin? I think it started because I watched Eddie Coyle, and I loved it. And I read the Criterion booklet that came along with it, the essay. And the guy mentions how, you know, after he saw this for the first time, he went looking like, where are the other films that are like this? There's got to be more like this. And there was nothing. There was nothing for Boston. There was no other gangster films that had that same vibe. And so that got me thinking about Boston films. And around the same time, you guys did that podcast episode where you talked about regional cinema and you talked about like New York and Florida on screen for a long time. And so that also got me thinking about Boston. And then finally, my manager at work recommended me this book called Big Screen Boston by Paul Sherman, who uh, used to be the film critic for one of the local papers. I think it might have been the Herald, but I'm not sure. And he uh, teaches at Harvard and came out in 2008. And it's pretty damn comprehensive for Boston film up until 2008. And he he hits all the major ones that were big. He gets The Departed in there. He gets Friends of Eddie Coyle, Mystic River, all those popular ones. But he also touches on a lot of really forgotten films or local filmmakers. Like there was this big boom in the 80s of independent filmmakers. And so he he really digs deep into it. And in reading the book, it reads a little more like an encyclopedia than it does any sort of like narrative history. But it's a great reference. So I've been... Slowly over the past, I don't know, six months or so, really digging deep into Boston film. And it's also kind of a way I live right outside of the city my whole life. So I'm not really right in the heart of it. So it's a great way for me to really explore more of of the city's history at the same time as I am spending more time there and trying to get a better feel for the city itself. So do you have one that you've seen since uh, Eddie Coyle that you've liked as much? Because, I mean, that one's that one's my go-to. I just, I adore that film. Yeah, uh, re-watching The Departed, uh, when I first saw it, when it came out, I, you know, I, I guess I liked it at the time. I didn't know as much about film. And so I was, I hadn't seen it since. And I had kind of been like, oh, it's a weaker Scorsese. I don't really, you know, need to rewatch it. And then doing this series, this little dive into local cinema, I rewatched it and it blew me away. And I think what's one thing that's interesting about The Departed is that it feels, I think it feels less like a Boston movie and more like a Hong Kong movie. He really gets those, that editing style down of, of Infernal Affairs and, and other Hong Kong cinema. And it, it just plays out like uh, it's source material, but kind of uh, put up in that Irish Boston setting aesthetic. I couldn't get into The Departed. You weren't into that one? I still, yeah. I, I don't like Departed at all. What do you think put you off about it? To be honest, Nicholson. I don't think Nicholson was any good in it. I really like the editing of it, and the story is, like, fine. I mean, it's... it's Scorsese, in general, I think since Goodfellas, his movies have been running maybe 15, 20 minutes too long. And, and Departed and Wolf of Wall Street were the two where I really felt the length was just... It didn't hold up to the content. With Wolf of Wall Street, it was hard because I don't know exactly what you would cut. But with Departed, I can't remember now because I haven't seen it since it came out. I was watching it. I remember thinking just like 
take this section out, take this part out. This isn't that good. You know, like there were parts of it that I just thought weren't up to the caliber of the rest. And you can tell he's having fun with it. I like like the Irish shots and all that kind of stuff. But it didn't work for me. And I didn't think Nicholson was any good in it. You're big on uh, Eddie Coyle though, right? Uh, yeah, I, I adore Eddie Coyle. That's I mean, one Eddie of those Coyle ones. Like top it's like, 50 for me, probably. Yeah, anyone that sees that one just goes crazy for it. Eddie Coyle is interesting because um, obviously I don't know Boston as well as you, Brad, or anybody who's making Eddie Coyle. But when I watch Eddie Coyle, I, I think of it the way like Dirty Harry couldn't have been set anywhere but L.A. You know, Eddie Coyle really, practically speaking, couldn't have been set anywhere but Boston. It would have meant different things. It really couldn't have. It gets the, the feel of the culture right, I think. Yeah, um, up to Bobby Orr. There's just like yeah, that little bit of Bobby, Bobby Orr in it. Just the, the old Bruins. Watch, I Paul Sherman in the book says he thinks they might have just shot that at a uh, actual game, the way it's it's shot. Oh, I'm, I'm sure they did because there's yeah. the a lot of times when you'll see um, people in sports games and movies, you can tell they're not really there because they're always in medium shots or close-ups. And Eddie Coyle, they're shooting them like with half a stadium around them. And it was a low-budget movie. One one thing that got me, I don't think those are there anymore. Those, those weird eateries he goes to. Oh, the automats? Yeah, the automats. I don't think I've ever seen one of those in my life. Yeah, automats no. are awesome. They, I I mean, my experience with them is just like Bugs Bunny cartoons. Everyone yeah, and Edward Hopper to, paintings. Yeah, everybody's yeah, going to them in those. It was, I think they were probably on their way out by the time they were in Eddie Coyle. Yeah. And they were, I think, very intentionally... That opening where he's in the automat, I think, is sort of a throwback to um, the noir Mitchum was doing in the 40s. Exactly. This is a very 40s image. Even down to the eating pie and drinking coffee, that's such a such a 1940s thing to do. Yeah. Outside they even of talk, like, don't they talk about it in coffee and cigarettes? They're like, our parents' generation were the pie and coffee generation. Yeah. And outside yeah. of like true romance, that's like the only one like, yeah. semi-modern that I can think of somebody eating pie and coffee or whatever. Yeah. The other great location I love there is um, the scene at the tea stop where the the cops come to bust the deal. Um, oh, and Jackie Brown's in that unbelievable yeah. car with that great shirt on. Exactly, and that's that's what those um, that was a great capturing what this place looks like because there's plenty of train stops that still look exactly like that, and just kind of surrounded by woods. You think it's remote, but it's really not. That kind of sense of the urban running through. The forest, I guess. Yeah, it reminds yeah. me of South Jersey. Like I could, I could almost see Eddie Coyle. Now that I think about it, if you had to put it anywhere else, like you could maybe get away with it in Atlantic City. Mm. Yeah. It has that same sort of vibe. And you also can't have anyone but Mitchum in that role. No, without it, I, uh, I. It's funny that the same thing that happened to you with that movie happened to me in a different way. I saw Eddie Coyle, and then I just decided I was going to watch everything Robert Mitchum ever did in the seventies. Mm. Because it's, it's one of those movies that just makes you want to watch more movies. Mm -hmm. And I it was the same experience. All the other Mitchum stuff I liked. Some of the other 70s movies, some of them quite a bit, but like nothing felt like Eddie Coyle. Nothing hit like Eddie Coyle did. It's the, it, the perpetual disappointment of Friends of Eddie Coyle. Mm. It's, it's pretty much just, you know, this is the greatest film ever made in Boston about Boston. When you're going into Boston films, it's just you don't expect anything to live up to Eddie Coyle because it's not going to. You're just going to be met with disappointment if you're looking for more of that. It really is just a class of its own. So what are some ones that uh, you found off the beaten path that you'd recommend? There's one I really like called Dealing or the Berkeley to Boston 40 Brick Lost Bag Blues. 
It's a it's long uh, alternate long title. Long ass title. It's a great title though. I love it. It's based on a book that's credited to Michael Douglas. Is actually Michael Crichton and his brother Douglas Crichton who co-wrote it. It's from '72. It's the first screen appearance of John Lithgow, and it's this sort of end of the '60s drug smuggling movie where this kid. I forget his character's name. He calls himself Lucifer at one point, and he's, he's in Berkeley, California, and John Lithgow is a weed dealer, and he asks him to move some product for him across the country. So he gets, you know, he it's the 70s, and he's able to just bring it on a plane with him. Comes over to Boston, but along the way, he meets this girl in California, and he wants to get her over there because he, he falls in love with her. And so he arranges for John Lithgow to pay for her ticket over, if she'll carry 40 bricks and she fucks up and gets caught at the at Logan Airport coming in and gets arrested. So they they find that one of the bags goes missing and they they pin it on a corrupt cop. And so they're kind of chasing this cop through Boston, trying to um, get the girl free and possibly bring down this cop. And it, it was kind of it was just kind of panned when it came out. It, it was kind of uh, in the same run as a lot of other things that was going on at the time. A lot of other uh, 60s, early 70s drug movies. So I think people were just kind of bored with that. But watching it today, you get some great location shots. And it's just kind of fun. This one uh, really gets it well. You get the old airport in there. You get um, this is one great scene where uh, they lure the cop onto onto a train and the train's just kind of going through. It passes by the cemetery where they've like hidden part of the stash for him to come get. And they're kind of like leading him along with notes and like a trail of breadcrumbs trying to lure him. And uh, he gets off at this cemetery in the middle of uh, the rail. That's a great location. It ends at uh, Walden Pond. The The climax is in is in Walden Pond. Really? Yeah, which is actually like an hour out of the city, but... It's it's a great setting. You don't really see that often. It's in the middle of the winter too, so it's all snowy and icy. That sounds gorgeous. Yeah, it sounds very um, rural for a for a Boston crime movie. It is. I mean, you you also get some you know some warehouses and stuff, but by the end it it goes rural with it, and I, that's what I love. And I think that's another thing with Boston is that you have uh, Southie, you have um, the urban areas of it. Or, or really the heart of Boston is very urban. But then all the surrounding New England wilderness is still there. There's still that rural aspect to it. Right. That um, is right outside of the heart of the city that you can go to and just get to in, you know, 20 minutes. So would you say that the best um, ones that you've seen so far have sort of taken advantage of that? Some of them, yeah. I, I think, you know, Eddie Coyle does that really well. Uh, Dealing does that really well. Yeah, no, not not enough of them do it. Mystic River gets a little of that, but not really. So would you say that's like an untapped potential of yeah. when you're oh, making Oh, Gone a... Baby Gone does it, I'm pretty sure. Mm. Oh, yeah, that yeah. is true, yeah. Yeah, Gone Baby Gone has that aspect to it. I, I still think it is a little untapped. I think there's more more to explore there that isn't really gotten. Because, you know, there's other genres of Massachusetts and New England film, like New England horror movies really get that, the woods... Yeah, all the Mixcatonic stuff and all that. The many Lovecraft adaptations where there's just like things slouching out of the woods. Yeah. Or just Salem witches really get the people. One thing I was thinking with these movies is I was always wondering how come with with Whitey Bulger when in the 70s you 
really have Friends of Eddie Coyle, and you don't really see a lot of other gangster movies set in Boston for years afterwards. In the the 80s, they kind of come back, and in the 90s, really. I was trying to come up with some, some theories about why Boston film has only really taken off since the 90s, and now today we have the Massachusetts tax credit that um, has brought a lot of productions over here. But if you look at the Massachusetts Film Board list of productions in shot in Massachusetts, there's like a few here and there up through about the 60s. And then you get maybe one a year. And then in the 90s, it really picks up until today where there's just just a load of them. And so I think um, part of it is that the city was really a hostile place to film at the time. And so I think Hollywood tended to stay away if they could. Um, Love Story was a big issue filming. They um, they shot that at Harvard and they really tore up the grounds and, and just made a mess of things. And so Harvard was was pretty pissed and did not let another film shoot there for years. But then you get you have Eddie Coyle and it's just kind of like, why did no one ever make anything else like this? Why did no one else look at Eddie Coyle and say, let's do something else in Boston? And I don't know for sure, but it may partially be Bulger um, was a huge problem in the Winter Hill Gang. Might have been an issue with that. You know, it, it was uh, Bulger walks into your shop, tells him, you pay me protection money or you end up in ditch. You, you pay him that money. There was no questions about it. So it might have been um, that might have added to the hostility of the city. And the government really wasn't supportive of Hollywood. So it's kind of today after the city's been cleaned up a lot more that you're now seeing films all about the gangs and the corruption and violence in the city. Right. Because they're not as much a threat. Yeah. And, um, another thing is, um, the Brinks job, the William Friedkin one from 78, which is a period piece about an actual robbery that stole $3 million and they almost got away with it. They were, about five days away from the statute of limitations expiring when someone gave them up. Wow. Yeah. And what year and was that? 1950. What, is when it how happened. long is the statute of limitations for that? It looks like it was only, they committed the robbery in 1950. On the 5th of January, 1956, uh, one of the robbers gave them all away to the FBI. That's a pretty short statute of limitations, right? <laughs> yeah. It seems like oh, a crime of that nature, you know? Like It was 11 more days until the statute of limitations expired. So if, it, if that just expired, they, they couldn't do anything? Yeah, they would have gotten away with it. And they... Why am I not robbing banks? The, uh, the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover spent $29 million trying to recover that $3 million, and they never got it. They got like less than $50,000. Oh, it so, it's, so it's like a cost thing. It was also just Jagger Hoover yeah. being being Hoover and not the principal of the matter. And so the film came out in 1978. Um, William Friedkin did it right after Sorcerer. And it's it's okay. It's an okay movie. It, it's a step down after Sorcerer. It's kind of the weakest of his 70s output, but it's got great performances. It's got Peter Falk and Warren Oates and Peter Boyle. But the shooting of it was just a nightmare. They had to, they paid a resident $50 to take their air conditioner out of their window and the next day they came back to the location to, to shoot more and everybody on that block put an air conditioner in. 
they the trucks got stuck on one-way roads and other tight narrow winding roads of boston because the layout is just fucked and uh best of all in august 78 a print of the film unedited print reels of the film were stolen at gunpoint jesus and they tried to ransom it for six hundred thousand dollars but they didn't it wasn't the negatives they still had the negatives so when they uh, the robbers called in the man the ransom Freakin said, get a projector and enjoy the film. It's all yours. <laughs> <laughs> so the Brinks job became shorthand for why would you, the, why the fuck would you ever want to shoot in Boston? And so that gives way to this kind of wave in the 80s of a lot of independent filmmakers in Boston. And none of these guys ever really caught on. Uh, there's Randall Conrad and Christine Dahl, who were documentarians who did a lot of work with PBS at the time. And they made a feature film in 81 called The Dozens, which um, is about a, a girl who's been in prison. She's a single mother and uh, she gets released from jail. And the entire system is basically just blowing up in her face, designed to get her to go straight back to jail. Like uh, the budget gets cut on her job program. So she's out of a job. Her boy, her boyfriend is selling coke and wants to get her in on it. So Everything's kind of stacked up against her. And then there's also Jan Eglison, who became a lot bigger. He wound up doing a film. He wound up getting work in, in Hollywood, and he uh, he wound up doing films with, like, Michael Caine, uh, Shock to the System. But he had all these early 80s films that he shot in Boston on, on very limited budget that never really got distributed well. Uh, he did a film called Billy in the Lowlands in 1979, and that kind of kicked off this little movement of independent Boston filmmakers um, about a um, guy on the run. And then he did The Dark End of the Street two years later in 81, and uh, that's got Lance Henriksen in it, actually, and a, uh, like a six-year-old Ben Affleck has a cameo. And um, he did another film called The Tender Age that's kind of the end of his Boston trilogy. So during this time where... Hollywood's pretty much ridden off Boston unless they absolutely have to. You got these independent filmmakers coming out and trying to make something. And they never really succeeded at breaking out. But um, the, the films, if you can find them, which they're very hard to find, are, are pretty interesting and touch on a lot of like the social issues and the crime at the time, and especially the race issues in Boston. So, um, John, you watched The Dozens in Dark Industry. What did you think of them? Yeah, you sent those my way. Uh, the Dozens, I didn't really enjoy at all. I thought the structure of it was kind of saggy. Like, it's all, uh, there's all this narration over everything that just doesn't need to be there. And the, the shots were um, kind of poorly thought out. The, the ending was pretty good. The best part of the movie, though, is at the beginning when there's these, like, juvenile de delinquents who are having, like, a cipher. And, um... This woman calls it their uh, reciting poems and calling each other names because it was like 1981, so nobody knew what rap, what rap was yet. Mm -hmm. That was pretty good. So other than that and the ending, I didn't really like that one at all. But Dark End of the Street, I thought was fantastic. That one, um, it's really uh, quietly strong in a lot of ways. Like it doesn't overplay its hand ever. It's, uh, it's all about this crime where they're worried about... Um, one, the wrong guy might get convicted and it's all coming down on, on race lines among these um, sort of equally poor uh, white and black Bostonites. And they never, um, 
they never sort of like grab you by the shoulders and shake you with this. They they just sort of let you over the course of the movie discover that that's really what the problem is as it goes. And there's a lot of really um, really strong location photography in that. There there big chunks of it take place in uh, in the projects and all that. And it's really uh, it was a really well done movie. I, I really really enjoyed Dark End of the Street. Yeah. Um, the the plot of that one. There is no crime really committed. Yeah, exactly. The 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 black kid who who dies dies completely by accident. But you have the two white kids who just happen to be at the scene, and it looks like a murder. It looks like he falls off a roof, and he it looks like he easily could have been pushed. And um, one of the kids has a has a record and doesn't want to go back to jail because he knows that if it's found out he's there, the cops are just going to think he did it. Yeah, and it's um. Even aside from Henriksen, who everybody knows is a great actor, there's really a lot of strong acting in that movie. Like um, when the guy falls off the roof near the beginning there, the um, the two white kids who were standing there watching him, it's this guy and his girlfriend, and the woman is just about to scream. And with this like real intense look in her eye, the, the guy just grabs her mouth and like holds it shut and stifles her scream because he doesn't want to draw attention to the fact that they're on this roof with the... Um, with the guy because he immediately knows how it's going to play out. It was really powerful, I think. Yeah, I think my, my favorite scene in the movie is uh, it's in the middle when, um, I, I forget the character's name, but the, the white girl and the black girl uh, get into a fight at a bar and get taken to a jail cell, and they're in cells right next to each other, and the white girl is trying to just kind of explain herself, and, and the black girl's just having none of it, and she just won't even look over or acknowledge her. I think that's... Oh, yeah, she tries to offer her the cigarettes through the bar and she just slaps them out of her hand without even looking. Yeah, that, that was scene. A, that was a good scene. What's interesting about that one, and what I think is interesting about this little movement of Boston filmmakers at the time, is that that, had, that was five years after the bicentennial where um, you had the busing situation and those riots that broke out along race lines. So there was a just a shit ton of racial tension in the city at the time and to the rest of the country, Boston just looked like one of the most racist cities in America, which arguably it was. So for that movie to really kind of come out is really hitting on that, on that nerve that was still, still fresh and still open. Yeah. I'm surprised it's a tact that more um, Boston filmmakers don't use because I mean, I've, I'm really kind of thrown by that about Boston because it's sort of, it, it presents itself as like America's cradle of knowledge and um, enlightenment. You know, it's got Harvard and this and that. But I've seen things in Boston that would have shocked me in the Deep South. You know, it, it really has this sort of undercurrent of um, almost old world racism to it. You know, this it's, this like really like long standing Puritan bred racism. It's really you kind of have two Bostons. You have um, the blue collar you know, the, the Irish and the Italian immigrants and the blue collar work people. And then you have the, the academic side of it and all the universities. And it's like two different worlds, two completely different cities trying to, to live in the same place. And both of them are just equally kind of have their own prejudices to them. You got that classed up, uh, university air to it all without ever kind of admitting that um it's it's um i don't want to use the word pretentious but like it, it kind of is it it's it, they they've really feel 
they're the Ivy League, so they're great. And then you've got the um, the blue collar aspect, the South Boston and all that. That's a lot more open in its uh, in its kind of contempt for um, the world and and its racism at times. So um, there's a scene in the movie Monument Ave that's best seen in the movie Monument Ave was '98. It was by Ted Demi, who um, Jonathan Demi's nephew, and he he was from from New England. And Monument Ave has this great scene in the middle that really just cuts to the racism. They drive by uh, a black guy walking by himself in the street, and one of his friends says, "Like, what, what, what's he doing here? He thinks he's on our turf." And so he's like, "Turn the car around, stop the car, let's get him." And he, he they get out, they grab the guy at gunpoint and force him into the back of the cab. And the actor who's a uh, the, the bystander gets taken in. He's, he's so fucking good in that scene. He's just like the, the look of fear on his face of just like, this is it, I'm going to die. I guess I won't spoil the scene, but it's just this vicious outburst of violence and hatred in the middle of the movie that really cuts to those. Because um, no, no one in Boston talks about these issues. No one in Boston ever acknowledges that this is a thing, that this racism is there. It's very much that, you know, liberal bastion idea of... Uh, we're so great and progressive and left and left wing. You, you you see that in very few movies, but the movies that really touch on it, Dark End of the Street and Monument Ave, fucking nail it. Sounds like one to check out, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Monument Ave came out at the end of the nineties and there was this kind of um I don't I don't they're unrelated, but they kind of feel at the same time they all came out in succession. So there's Monument Ave, there's this movie Southie that uh oh yeah you're telling me about that one you think i'm gonna really like that one right i feel like you're gonna like that one because it's 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 got um a bit of a cliched plot and it's you know it hit, hangs on a lot of that sounds movies. like an insult to me <laughs> what is it about but <laughs> I haven't heard it's of it. um it's got this great local flavor to it and um it's kind of underappreciated it's about uh donnie Wahlberg is the lead and he is kind of the um he just moved back home after living in new york city for a while and everyone in the neighborhood is just like oh you you're back you, you think you're like mr city boy's back so his his friend his best friend who is a pre-arrested development will arnett <laughs> um is like getting involved in the uh the gangsters and the, the kind of the whitey bulger stand-in is lawrence tierney and um who doesn't really have that many lines it was like the last movie he did before he died but um he was also famously awful to work with oh yeah i don't know if there's any stories but there's there's another story about this movie i'll tell in a minute but it's um it's just kind of that whole uh it's it's he's stuck between his family who are affiliated with one gang and his friends who are affiliated with this other gang and just trying to stay out of the violence and getting sucked into it and like his whole life is falling apart his sister's got a drug problem his sister's rose mcgowan in another like early role and I, I don't know. I, it's hard to say why, why Cody, why you would like it. I just, when I was watching it, I just kind of got the sense of like, I feel like Cody would really like this movie. I like his Rose McGowan's in it. Yeah. I mean, come yeah. on. And Will and, Arnett. That's, that's really cool to see him so early on. Yeah. He's, he's not bad in it either. He's, he's got, he plays that kind of plucky um, kid who thinks he thinks he's going to be big in the, with the gangsters, but he's really just naive and kind of obnoxious and he doesn't realize it. That type of character. Right. The story about Southie is that when it premiered, it played at the Kendall Square Cinema in, um, this was like 98, I think, 97, and uh, played at the Kendall Square Cinema in Cambridge. 
and they brought out a bus with uh, the name Southie on it, and everyone, like all the stars came off. And one of the guys who's like a minor role, I don't know which actor it was, but he's a minor role in the movie, comes off, and the police swoop in and grab him because he was wanted, and they knew he was going to be there for to promote the movie. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one from that era, let's not spend a lot of time on this one, The Boondock Saints. Oh, God. Um, which... The fuck that movie oh god i hate that movie i hadn't seen it since high school i saw it once and i liked it and i was like oh yeah you know and then i rewatched it for this project and i by the end i was just seething with hatred for this this little like little rat piss of a movie now that is i hate to break it to you though but probably the great success story of boston independent cinema you probably got i mean for film people it's eddie coyle but in practical terms it's Goodwill Hunting and it's uh, Boondock Saints. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that one became the success story, though. Well, if you had to, like, take a swing at it, I mean, why do you think that one landed? Let's see. Uh, we, the three of us, we've all seen Overnight, the, the documentary about the making of it. Which is fantastic. Yeah, that movie's pretty great. Although that's that's an L.A. story, if anything. Right. But, uh, and also, goes- I, feel like, I feel like this should be brought up. Overnight which for those of you who don't know, it's a great documentary about the making of Boondock Saints because the guy who did it, Troy Duffy, was this fucking clown shit baby who destroyed his own career. But if Boondock Saints was good, I don't think that documentary would have mattered. Right. Like, you know, if the movie's good, fine. Be as weird as you want to be. You know what I mean? Yeah, but when it's bad... Like, I feel like people use overnight to talk about why Boondock Saints isn't good. And it, I don't, it doesn't work like that. It's more an indictment against him than Boondock yeah. Saints. Yeah, and I, I reject the idea of criticizing something by saying the creator was bad, unless it's Reifenstahl. I think um, the movie is bad on its own terms. And I think part of it is bad because creator's bad, but you can see in Overnight Troy Duffy's personality, and then you watch Boondock Saints, or you, you just watch Boondock Saints, and then you watch Overnight, and you see his personality in that movie which it's just this outcry of just impotent rage, just kind of raging at the world without really much of a, a point to it. It's just angry for the sake of anger. Like, this is a movie where, like, I think the first scene of the movie is this butch lesbian gets overly angry about a someone using the phrase rule of thumb because of that urban legend where it applies to beating your wife and they get into a fight and that character never comes back. That scene had nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It's just angry and fairly sexist for the point of it. Just because Troy Duffy is this angry, angry man. It's terribly edited. It's terribly paced. A lot of the line deliveries that I thought I remembered as being really cool, like Willem Dafoe saying there was a firefight. Like, I remember that in my mind as being a cool moment. Watching it again, that's just pathetic. It's just, it falls flat on its face. But why it landed is I think it has that air of coolness to it that connects with people. It's popular, especially in Boston, because it, it hits on that that Irish Catholic vibe that's that's huge. And, you know, if a lot of my friends who listen to this podcast they're gonna get angry at me because i'm bashing boondock saints because they they love that movie and um i think it, it gets that kind of hometown feeling to it i don't know why it became a national hit like, well was, so would you say it's an accurate portrayal of a, a period of of boston history then it's hard to really say i think it's more of a um a fantasy idea of the cool vigilante but um 
as far as getting that culture. I'm not talking about the plot. I'm talking about the the feeling of it. Maybe, maybe it does. Like, is that is the misplaced rage thing? Maybe something that taps into a misplaced rage of people you in know, Boston. You know what? Yeah, I'd I'd say it it would be. You can, and you see this in movies that are um like Monument Ave, which is kind of about those those types of people with misplaced rage. I think it it taps into that. I think that might be part of it. It gets into that sort of mindset, that sort of, um, you know, there's the Catholic upbringing, which hits people. There's the Irish, um, there's the proud Irish heritage, which which people really um, connect with. And um, I think there's also, though, that uh, abrasiveness of of kind of South Boston and uh, the the culture of, of, you know, almost that rudeness to it all that where, um, you know, you see people there, the whole like mass hole for idea, the whole, uh, sense of Boston being a pretty, um, abrasive place. It, it's kind of like when people from here go to the South and they talk about how people just strike up a conversation with strangers and it's just so weird because that's not what it's like here. Here it's kind of everyone else. It's fuck you. Fuck you. Um, get out of my way. You're blocking the street. Uh, fuck you. You, you look, you're looking at me weird. Fuck you. That's kind of the culture here. And so maybe Boondock Saints really does tap into that. Maybe that that really is. It hits on that part of the culture fairly well. It doesn't make it any more watchable. But but by maybe, the, the sort of standards of self-expression, like, I mean, I can't stand that movie, but it's at least as competently made as the dozens. Yeah. And it, um, I hate to say it, but I think it's it's fairly accurate self-expression wouldn't you say especially when you see overnight and like you said there's a very small line if a line at all between the characters in the movie and the actual south boston creators that's um it's a hard truth buddy yeah all right i agree (laughs) i hope i didn't just turn you off your your whole boston project (laughs) no 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 i'm totally still for it i think it's um interesting i think it's boondock saints is is capturing something that's not at all pleasant. It's kind of the some of the worst personality traits of kind of the the city, I guess. It's the parts of the um the city that really piss me off. It's rage fueling rage in a way. The few other movies that um are on my list to talk about is let's um jump back like 50 years and talk about the film noirs. There's two two big ones. The biggest one is Mystery Street, which is actually a pretty good movie. It stars Ricardo Montalban, and it's about it's kind of a um, a lot of critics have called it a precursor to CSI because it's that sort of procedural where they're trying to use forensics to figure out uh, who uh, who a body was and use the bones to then find a killer. Oh, wow. Oh, they and, loved that stuff in the 50s. They were all about those. Look what science can do. <laughs> Mystery movies. Yeah, yeah. They they go to the Harvard Medical School for it. So um, the murder happens on Cape Cod. It's this, you, you've, the first 20 minutes of the movie, are you, you see the murder happen. You see the girl. You get to know her. She goes to a bar. She wants to go to the Cape to see her, her married boyfriend and finds a drunk guy, gets him to give her his car, and they go down to the Cape. She, uh, she kicks him out and steals his car. And then the married boyfriend wanting to end a relationship just kills her and buries her in the sand. And so months later, they just find her bones. And Ricardo Montalban is the detective put in charge of the case. And 
they take the bones to Harvard Medical and they're kind of jumping between Boston and Cape Cod to discover what happened and catch the guy who did it. I like that one a lot. You, you see the parts of the city that have changed completely while still kind of maintaining that same character to Boston in a sense. You, the, the roads still feel very Boston, even though the buildings look different and look updated. Or really, that's a movie that gets the cape really well, I think. It gets those um, diners off the side of the road in Cape Cod. It, it nails those. It gets the beach really well. It's almost more, it takes place more in Boston, but I think it does a better job of representing Cape Cod as it is still today than it does the city itself. Mm. And then the other one is a lot lesser known. And I found that thanks to the big screen Boston book. And John, you watched this one, Walk East on Beacon, yeah. which is uh, based on a story by J. Edgar Hoover about, um, not, a, not a story, an article about communist sleeper cells in America's cities and in Boston hibernating before they strike and try and unleash the communist threat onto America. And it's sort of that type of paranoia right after World War II um, Soviets are going to get us fears. What, what did you make of that one, John? Um, there's another movie from like 1951, maybe, called The Whip Hand. And it's basically the exact same premise. But it's the guy who directed... Um, Invaders from Mars, which is one of the great movies about paranoia ever told about like a kid who finds out his parents have been taken over by pod people. And um, the whip hand is sort of the same thing, except it's a grown man who finds out his entire um, town, more or less, has been taken over by communist pod people. And that one showed me personally that I can watch something that I know is politically off the wall insane. And still kind of work with it. So Walk East on Beacon has essentially the same philosophy. I mean, literally written by J. Edgar Hoover is like the funniest thing you can imagine. And it started out pretty well. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of kind of atmosphere to the beginning. There's a lot of like waiting and a lot of sort of skulking around that really works. But man, that movie, that was like the, the D team who was directing and, and starring in that one. I mean, that is... It's like when you're watching a basketball game and you can just sort of see the team get worn out mm -hmm. as the quarters go. Like by the end of that movie, you're like, all right, just just tag someone in, man. You can't you're not going to be able to finish this one. Yeah, I'd, I'd describe it same way. It's um, but it's fun, you said for a while. It's and short. Then, <laughs> it's short and it's kind of worth the watch just because it's so off the wall. Right. Yeah, it's it's the last movie George Murphy did before he went into politics, too. That's one of those ones that I wish there was some text out there about like the making of it and the reception of it and everything because you know that was just the craziest shoot probably can you imagine you're working on a movie and jagger hoover drops by to see how it's going because <laughs> it's based on his reader's digest article it's just such a collision of very weird very specifically 1950s things like you can't imagine leon panetta writing an article for like vanity fair now and then them making a mid-budget movie about it it's well, I very... guess the only thing similar is like that, um, you know, that God is not real movie or whatever. Where... Oh, by Colton Burpo? Yeah. No, that, or, or no I, wait, um, God is, heaven is totally. For real. Yeah, heaven is for God's real. God's not dead is the other one. Yeah, God's not dead is the one that's about like a, an email forward about a... Oh um, my God, yes, <laughs> about the professor. Yeah, it was basically based on just a made up yeah. email forward. Now imagine if the email forward <laughs> was written by like the Secretary of State. <laughs> 
The Colton Burpo one, though, yo, I spent 20 minutes once trying to assure my friend that I didn't make up that name to insult the kid. Yeah. And that was the kid's actual name. <laughs> you just wouldn't believe me. And it turned out like the family got like totally taken advantage of by the, the um, publishing company or something where like... Yeah, and then the kid came out and said he made it up because yeah, he's but, a kid. And he... But he came out and said that before it was even published. And, and yeah. the family was like, but we came out and we were like, we were against this, but they published it anyway and all that. Uh, it's just craziness, man. Yeah. But that's the kind of movie that Walk East on Beacon is. Right. Like it, it taps into that same sort of, that same sort of thing where it's just somewhere between evil and ridiculous and you're not quite sure where it lies. And it's kind of fun to just watch it worm around in the grass and its own incompetence. So it's a curiosity. Yeah. It's a curiosity. It's for like history buffs, I think. Yeah, I, I like uh, watching old propaganda a lot. I'm interested to see how it works. So um, it was interesting for me, though. Even then, it's still by the last half hour of it, you're you're kind of done with it. It should have been an hour long. Well, old propaganda, I think, is very instructive to watch because if you can watch it and you don't have a dog in the fight, you can recognize the things they do that they still do. Right. Oh, yeah. So like a lot of... Um, a lot of things I've seen in old propaganda movies, I have seen in war movies from the past five years. I mean, Lone Survivor, that could have been, that could have been a Red Scare movie, you know? Well, or that could, could have been, it even could have been a Soviet movie made after World War II. They're doing stuff like Lone Survivor all the time then. Or, or look at that, um, that literal military-funded propaganda movie, Act of Valor, that came out in wide yeah. release. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, they weren't even hiding it. It was funded by the military. Yeah, start. It started life as a Navy SEALs recruitment video, and then they were like, "This is the really army good. has a video game." <laughs> I feel like yeah. as a culture, we haven't stopped and processed that fact. Right, that the army made a first-person shooter video game. I mean, did they really even have to? A Call of Duty does the job for them. It's it's just yeah. That's also the same exact reason why I like watching old propaganda. Is is you hit the nail on the head. You see it today. You see it like look at any '80s action movie. Like half those. Half of those movies are pure propaganda. 2000s action movie. You don't even have to go to the obvious 80s choices. The weirdest thing about like the old 80s ones to me is like there was always like the plot of like the Americans versus like the scary ninjas who are like cutting people's heads off. And then if you look at yeah, today, it's they... all ISIS. It's like all, we have like those ninjas that are cutting people's heads off. Like we're in like an 80s action movie now. I like the presumption that it was always the ninjas who were in charge of the drug trade. Right. The 80s always assumed that drugs were being peddled by ninjas. Right. Turned out it was the CIA. But at the time, we were really pretty sure it was ninjas with a white guy in command. Yeah. Who wore a different colored gi. It was always that crew. And it turns out, historically, they just weren't on the ball with that. Another one I wanted to bring up, going back to Boston, another obscure one called Black and White and Red All Over. And this one, it's only really available on VHS right now. Probably not going to be a DVD anytime soon. I could be wrong, but it came out in like 97, played at Sundance. Ebert wrote a little bit about it and liked it, but it's been completely forgotten. And it's a all black cast. It's about six friends who live in the same apartment who um, just kind of look at their lives, look at the uh, all the black on black violence that's all around them and in the city and the entire movie takes place in this apartment that's in cambridge but they really hit the local flavor in the dialogue they really um without with like one 
scene where you look outside the window and see the street. There is technically nothing to really say that this is Boston, but they they nail the flavor and the dialogue. And it's again, it's kind of, maybe it's kind of like the dozens in that it's it's flawed. It's very much a first film. It um it actually had three directors on it, and that might have been a bit too many people directing it. But it it kind of hits on those ideas. It hits on um some pretty good performances, and it's one that's it's very forgotten. And you can you can buy it on Amazon, I think, but there's like three copies left or something. So it it's one when I watched it, I just thought it's a movie that while it's not great, it's not going to be something that people pull out and say this is a hidden classic. It's still one that deserves a little notice and is a pretty unique film, especially in kind of the the history of Boston independent cinema. So there's that one to talk about. And then the only other two movies on my list that I had were uh, Thomas Crown Affair and Mystic River. What do you think of Mystic River? I like the scene a lot where they take, uh, without spoiling it, they take Tim Robbins out for drinks and that whole extended sequence towards the end of the movie. Right. And I like the parade at the end of it, which actually, I think they took the parade scene at the end from the ending of Southie. Oh, which, really? Uh, also really? ends at a parade. Ah. Um, well, shot context. Now we're getting huh? somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. John D'Amico just woke up. There's <laughs> a little bit there. And then the rest of the movie is just like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. I like the the very beginning of it and then the rest I just don't care about. Yeah, that's good too. That's one of those ones everyone was real ride or die for and then just stopped. Oh, yeah. With immediately. Anybody who cared about that one, I haven't heard anything about that I one. I think it was because like the poster years. was so good. It was a good poster. It was a good poster and it, it maybe rode a year just off the strength of its poster. And it was like that, that look, that like color scheme was like, I don't know, it made it unique at the time. Yeah. It felt the only thing people really took from that was like, all right, let's use that as a color scheme. It's funny when you can see those ones though, that like, you know, everyone's going to be real hard for, for about a year to 18 months. Oh yeah. No shelf life on that one. Yeah. Like, you know, like the theory of everything is going to get mystic rivered. Mm-hmm. It's, it'll be a trivia question. Yeah. Yeah. There's some best actor trophies out there that, uh, no one really remembers why they were won. Do you like Lahane? I don't actually have any problems with Lahane. I just, nothing he does really clicks for me. Nothing he does really screams out and says, yes, like, this is this is great. He He's very dark. And you know what? Actually, I can't even really say. I've only seen his film adaptations. I've never actually seen, I've never actually read one of his books. I'm just going off of all the films that are based on his books. But all the films that are based on his works always kind of have that same aesthetic to them that's just kind of this glossy grim, dark, bitter, hostile environments that just just doesn't really click for me. I, I don't really get into them. He wrote a couple episodes of The Wire, which I was always like, I was always jarred by because I, w- I was never into Lahane whatsoever. And then seeing his name pop up on The Wire when watching that, I'm like, oh, do you know shit. which? Um, do I like Lahane? Do you know which ones? I mean, that show, I guess it's probably hard to delineate like that, but I think it was like, I don't know, maybe towards the end of it. What did you say? Glossy, dark? That's kind of an interesting... It, it's um like Mystic River, for example. And I think Mystic River, which was the first film based on one of his books, kind of set the, the tone. And I think there's this sort of, um you know, heavy shadows. But at the same time, everything feels like it has this glimmer to it. Like there's that water everywhere that sparkles. Yeah. And there's this sort of this, this very reflective... They took Mystic yeah. River literally. 
<laughs> and yeah, this is very reflective. That's beautiful look looking in Shutter Island, though. I thought Shutter Island was really pretty. I should rewatch that one. I haven't seen that. I mean, one I didn't love it. Out. I didn't love it by any means. But yeah, that but, sort um, of glossy dark look worked for it. Yeah, it, it, it's sort of also just the world the films based on his works have uh, created, where it's very mean and hostile, but it looks very glittered up and very uh, you know fancy. It's grime that's been polished. Do you think that's honest? No, I don't. I don't think it's that honest. That actually sort of um, got to me with The Departed, which is kind of making me think of this. The Departed, I, I never felt like Scorsese was really telling the truth about being a criminal in Boston. Like you could watch Goodfellas, and like that's pretty much it, you know? Yeah, you get the gist. Cutting the the garlic with the razor blades in prison. And that's even funny what they that you wear. Said, that's always the first image I go to when I think about that movie. Yeah. I love that. And it's these just very specific time and location based places. You know, I mean, I, I've had family arguments where you had to go run and stir the sauce in the middle of it. And just the little, you know, the, the minutia was on point. Yeah. There wasn't really much minutia in the pardon. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't feel honest about Boston criminals to me in a way that Eddie Coyle really did. Or Dark End of the Street really did. That's pretty fair. I think, um, well, it's interesting. You've got Matt Damon, who's a um, Boston native, putting on a fake accent. It's a pretty terrible accent. Oh, I accent. never thought about that. That's funny. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mark Wahlberg, I think, is the most authentic in that movie. I think he gets his natural accent in there. He um, Well, he's he selfie right as balls, right? I mean, wasn't he like yeah. a, he, he from, was like a street punk in... Um, from Dorchester. Um, yeah, he like used to just like beat people up in the streets or whatever. Yeah, yeah. he blinded a dude for life. Yeah. That was what he, um, that whole controversy with him seeking a pardon. Yeah. Which um, he never actually made an announcement. It was a private filing that they dug up, but um, he did some real, like, serious shit and then got famous in spite of it. But I think he, he works in that movie really well because he's the one that fits most naturally into the setting. Right. He never feels out of, he never feels like he's, he's being the Ray Liotta. <laughs> like, like DiCaprio kind of feels like he's been shoved in there. But Damon is, is weird because. It, well, first of all, it's not his natural accent. He's um, putting on a, a thick Southie accent, and it's terrible. It's um, it's so weird to to see him try and do that. I wonder that how he, hard that is to put on an accent that you've heard your whole life but don't have. Right. I wonder if that's harder. Maybe he's like, it's almost like he has the pressure on him that he's like, all right, everyone knows me as like I'm Boston bred and born. I have to, I have to nail this. I have to represent my city yeah. and then but i mean like th like pressure. could you do like a southie accent i feel like it, it's almost harder to to like do that well it's like just I, out of reach you yeah know? yeah you're you're perpetually like salieri with it you know you you it, can it, see it but you can't get it if i if i do it it's gonna sound you know forced because it's almost like a you're thinking about it and b you almost feel like you have to be able to do it yeah that's fine i'm not really going anywhere with that i just <laughs> No, it's an interesting idea. Yeah, Brad, um, do, a, do a Boston accent. All right, a fucking Mark Wahlberg is from Dorchester, and uh, I don't know, really know where the fuck I'm going with this. I, I, I don't have anything prepared to say. I don't know. Did that sound like... <laughs> it sounded like Boston? Woody Allen, kind of. At the it end. sounded like Woody <laughs> Allen doing Mayor Quimby. <laughs> <laughs> there's some stand-up comedian. Uh, her name's Jane Condon. She has a, a bit where she talks about how there's three Boston accents. There's the North Boston accent. There's the South Boston accent. And then there's the Kennedy accent, which nobody yeah. has except for the Kennedys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break, do some mailbag. See you soon. And now, Chloe Peltier reviewing a movie she's seen parts of while working at the theater. 
Okay, you guys, I'm really, really mad because I really, really want to see Chappie. Cody Clark keeps talking about how much he loves it. John D'Amico loves it, and Alex Hyatt loves it, and Harry Brewis loves it, and I know I'm going to love it too, and I keep having to work it, and I just like squint and don't look at the screen and kind of try to blur my eyes sometimes so that I don't see it, and I keep hearing stuff and it keeps getting spoiled for me. I'm sorry I don't have a lot to actually say about Chappie because I haven't seen it, but I'm just really mad that I haven't seen it yet. I'll get to it. As Jenna Ipcar would say, I keep getting pushed back. Thanks, Chloe. And now, back to the show. First question is from James, and he asks, What's your favorite movie about a scientist? People love science. Yeah. Best movie about a scientist. Jurassic Park. Yeah. Oh, damn. God damn it. That is a grand slam. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to pick Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Do you feel well, that accurately captures the scientific experience, Honey, I Shrunk the I Kids? I think so. Yeah, sure. Shooting laser beams at your kids and just sort of hoping for the best. I would like then to Then letting them yeah. get attacked by giant scorpions. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's is great. Is that what it's all about? If I can't do that, why do I want to be a scientist, you know? Yeah, it's a it's a great throwback to before ethics were really a big question in science. You could just experiment <laughs> on your family. Exactly. Yeah, it's pretty much the story of that one dude who did all the experiments on the monkeys. The guy <laughs> who made all the monkeys scared and then measured their fear. Right. Who is basically a fucking supervillain. <laughs> <laughs> what other scientist ones are we not thinking of? I'll tell you the thing from another world, the 1951 one, probably does the best job I've ever seen of making one of those movies where inherently the scientist has to be the bad guy because it's about killing the monster mm. but making him completely reasonable and in any other circumstance right the entire time big fan of that one there's also there's a eastern european movie called the structure of crystal i want to say it's polish it's one of the you know icy places i'm gonna go with poland and it's about this this scientist who's uh he's like a crystallographer he's like a chemist and he's just hanging out in this um cabin for the winter with his friends. This is about kind of their relationships. And then it also has this sort of meta narrative where it's about um, human interactions as viewed through like the veil of like crystallography. Jeez. It's a really good movie. Yeah, it sounds interesting. So it's, it's a brisk like 90 minutes, really beautiful widescreen black and white, which is a rare combo. Early 60s, I want to say. Really good movie, that one. Was uh, Peter Laurie a scientist in Madlov or was he a psychiatrist? He was a pianist, wasn't he? No, he's a scientist of some sort. Or maybe Wasn't he? Some... Oh, no, it's the other one where it's the piano player gets his hands cut off. No, but, it's um the one I'm thinking of. It's it the one where he's like obsessed with the woman. Right. No, that, that is the same one. It's um it's the Hands of Orlock story, but um right. it's just redone. But Peter Laurie is the scientist who reattaches them or something. Oh, uh, yeah, you're right. That's a good one. You know what else is a good one in that vein? Dr. Cyclops. You ever see that? No. no. It's Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, except it's an evil doctor doing uh -oh. it to sort of street randos. <laughs> and then Wait. they got to escape his, um, his, his like cabin when mm. they're about the size of Ken dolls and G.I. Joe's. I love people getting shrunk. Dr. Cyclops is, is always my pick for like, if you got to remake any movie you wanted, right. I would remake Dr. Cyclops. That's such a fun premise. The reason I love uh, Mad Love so much is that there's that great Ren and Stimpy line that they grabbed from it, which is, you think I, it is I who am crazy, but it is I who am mad, which is like one of the greatest lines ever, which I totally just botched. I think it's phrased a little bit differently, but you get Was the that gist. your Boston accent? 
No, that was my um, <laughs> vaguely Ren accent. Panza Orlac is kind of interesting because you can tell when people saw it by whether they call it Mad Love or the Hands of Orlac. Right. Because I always knew it as a kid as the Hands of Orlac. And then I guess when they fixed it up for DVD and everything, they must have restored it to what was its original title or something like that. Because all of a sudden it became Mad Love. That really threw me. I uh, Another scientist I like. I like the scientist from Day of the Dead a lot. What's his name? Oh, I only know him as Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, but him, I I like his enthusiasm. I think he's got he's got a real gung ho attitude in the the face of the apocalypse. Yeah, you know he's not afraid to feed the only living humans he's ever met to a pretty cool dead guy. Yeah, I guess makes, the fly too, right? Oh yeah, the yeah. fly, great pick. Yeah, uh, just lots of mad scientists reanimator. Well, That's what's our best? Ooh, reanimator what's our best, like, and from beyond scientists. From beyond's good. You know, you could go mad scientists all day, but what's what are the best, you know, like regular working man scientists? <laughs> Honey, I shrunk the kids. Yeah. Maybe the right stuff. Oh, I mean, they were doing mean. some science like a motherfucker up there. And Apollo 13, there's science all say, over that. Dude, I love that scene in Apollo 13 where it's like all the scientists at the table and he's like, all right, we got to figure out a way to put this in the hole for this. Oh, and it's literally a round that. peg yeah. in a square hole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it's like, like a Breaking Bad scene. Also, that. Breaking Bad. Ah. There you go. But he's a little mad, right? Yeah. I mean, not at first. And then... Don't, don't spoil it. I, I'm still in season two. Well, you well, know that he cooks meth. Yes. <laughs> you know, you're kind of on track. Yeah. He's not, he's not a mad scientist in the sense that he's going to, like, make a Frankenstein monster. He's just uh, an angry scientist. Yeah. He's, he's a mad scientist in the sense that he's very mad and he's also a scientist. Right. But he would be mad even if he weren't a scientist. And he would still be a scientist even if he wasn't mad. Mm. Which Frankenstein, you feel like they're pretty entwined. Right. Old Heisenberg's a little, you know, a little different. All right. We're going to wrap it up here. Brad. Yes. Always a pleasure. Thank you. I got like a fucking movie list of stuff to watch now. I got to brush up on my Boston. And we're going to, we'll do another one where we focus on more of the oddball stuff, right? Yeah, I was thinking we um, we covered crime pretty well. There's, you know, there's more Hollywood stuff to talk about. We could talk about Goodwill Hunting and Love Story and all that. We could also talk about Cheers. But why not let's uh, dig into some of the weirder, non-straight crime films that, uh, any, any I'll, I'll find some stuff. We'll, uh, I'll take a few months off to research and then we'll, uh, we'll come back to it. Sweet. I love how you're becoming like this Boston film historian now. Long way to go, but that's that's the plan. You're on the path. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. See you soon.